Section three of A Visit to the Holy Land. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter two of A Visit to the Holy Land, Egypt and Italy, Part one, by Ida L. Pfeiffer. March thirty first. We started early this morning, and at eight o'clock had already reached Gergovo. This town is situate on the left bank of the Danube, opposite the fortress of Rushchuk. It contains sixteen thousand inhabitants, and is one of the chief trading towns of Wallachia. We were detained here until four o'clock in the afternoon, for we had to unload above six hundred carried weight of goods and eight carriages, and to take coals on board in exchange. Thus we had time to view the interior of this Wallachian city. With what disappointed surprise did my fellow passengers view the ugliness of this town, which from a distance promises so much. On me it made but little impression, for I had seen towns precisely similar in Galicia. The streets and squares are full of pits and holes, the houses are built without the slightest regard to taste or symmetry, one perhaps projecting halfway across the street, while its neighbor falls quite into the background. In some places wooden booths were erected along each side of the street for the sale of the commonest necessities of life and articles of food, and these places were dignified by the name of bazaars. Curiosity led us into a wine shop and into a coffee house. In both of these we found only wooden tables and benches. There were hardly any guests, and the few persons present belonged to the humblest classes. Glasses and cups were handed to the company without undergoing the ceremony of rinsing. We purchased some eggs and butter, and went into the house of one of the townspeople to prepare ourselves a dish after the German fashion. I had thus an opportunity of noticing the internal arrangements of a house of this description. The floor of the room was not boarded, and the window was only half glazed, and the remaining portion being filled up with paper or thin bladder. For the rest, everything was neat and simple enough. Even a good, comfortable divan was not wanting. At four o'clock we quitted the town. The Danube is now only broad for short distances at a time. It is, as it were, sown with islands, and its waters are therefore more frequently parted into several streams than united into one. In the villages we already notice Greek and Turkish costumes, but the women and girls do not yet wear veils. Unfortunately, it was so late when we reached the fortress of Silistria that I could see nothing of it. A little lower down we cast anchor for the night. At an early hour on April 1st we sailed past Hirsova, and at two o'clock stopped at Brela, a fortress occupied by the Russians since the year 1828. Here passengers were not allowed to land, as they were considered infected with the plague, but our officer stepped forward, and vouched for the fact that we had neither landed nor taken up any one on the right bank of the river. Thereupon the strangers were allowed to set foot on terra firma. By four o'clock we were opposite Galatz, one of the most considerable commercial towns, with eight thousand inhabitants, the only harbor the Russians possess on the Danube. Here we saw the first merchant ships and barks of all kinds coming down from the Black Sea. Some seagulls also, heralds of the neighboring ocean, soared above our heads. The scene here is one of traffic and bustle, Galatz being the place of rendezvous for merchants and travelers from two quarters of the globe, Europe and Asia. 
It is the point of junction of three great empires, Austria, Russia, and Turkey. After the officer had repeated his assurances, as at Brela, we were permitted to leave the ship. I had a letter of recommendation to the Austrian consul, who accidentally came on board. After reading my letter he received me very kindly, and most obligingly procured quarters for me. The town promises much, but proves to be just such a miserable dirty place as Gergovo. The houses are generally built of wood or clay, thatched with straw. Those alone belonging to the consul and the rich merchants are of stone. The finest buildings are the Christian church and the Moldavian hotel. Though Galatz lies on the Danube, water for drinking is a dear article among the inhabitants. Wells are to be found neither in the houses nor in the squares. The townspeople are compelled to bring all the water they require from the Danube, which is a great hardship for the poor people, and a considerable expense for the rich. In winter a small tub of water costs from ten to twelve kretzers, about four d or five d, in the more distant quarters of the town. At every corner you meet water carriers, and little wagons loaded with tubs of water. Attempts have frequently been made to procure this indispensable element by digging, Water has, indeed, in some places, gushed forth, but it always had a brackish taste. In Galatz we made a halt of twenty-four hours. The delay was not of the most agreeable kind, as neither the town itself nor its environs offer anything worthy of remark. Still, I always think of these days with pleasure. Herr Consul Huber is a polite and obliging man, himself a traveller. He gave me many a hint and many a piece of advice for my journey. The air of quiet comfort which reigned throughout his house was also not to be despised by one who had just endured many days of privation. At Herr Huber's I found relief both for body and mind. April 2nd. The scenery round the town is so far from being inviting that I did not feel the least inclination to explore it. I therefore remained in the town and went uphill and down dale through the ill-paved streets. Coffee-houses appear in great abundance, but if it were not for the people sitting in front of them drinking coffee and smoking tobacco, no one would do these dirty rooms the honor of taking them for places of entertainment. In the market, and the squares, we notice a great preponderance of the male sex over the female. The former are seen bustling about everywhere, and, like the Italians, perform some duties which usually fall to the lot of the softer sex. We notice a mixture of the most different nations, and among them a particularly large number of Jews. The bazaar is overloaded with southern fruits of all kinds. Oranges and lemons are seen here in great numbers, like the commonest of our fruits. The prices are, of course, very trifling. The cauliflowers brought from Asia Minor are particularly fine. I noticed many as large as a man's head. In the evening I was required to repair to the harbour and re-embark. It is almost impossible to form an idea of the confusion which reigns here. A wooden railing forms the barrier between the healthy people and those who come from or intend travelling to a country infected with the plague. Whoever passes this line of demarcation is not allowed to return. Soldiers, officers, government officials, and superintendents, the latter of whom are armed with sticks and pairs of tongs, stand at the entrance to drive those forcibly back who will not be content with fair words. Provision and other articles are either thrown over the barrier or left in front of it. 
In the latter case, however, they may not be touched until the bearers have departed. A gentleman on the plague side wished to give a letter to one on the other. It was immediately snatched from his hand and handed across by means of a pair of tongs. And all this time such a noise and hubbub is going on that you can scarcely hear the sound of your own voice. "'Pray hand me over my luggage,' cries one. "'Keep farther away. Don't come near me. And mind you don't touch me.' anxiously exclaims another, and then the superintendent keeps shouting, "'Stand back! Stand back!' etc. I was highly entertained by this spectacle. The scene was entirely new to me. But on my return, when I shall be one of the prisoners, I fear I may find it rather tedious. For this time I was not at all hindered in the prosecution of my journey. On the whole these timid precautions seemed to me exceedingly uncalled for, particularly at a time when neither the plague nor any kind of contagious disease prevailed in Turkey. One of my fellow-passengers had been banished to our ship on the previous day, because he had the misfortune to brush against an official on going to sea after his luggage. At seven o'clock the tattoo is beaten, the grating is shut, and the farce ends. We now repaired to the fourth and last steamer, the Ferdinand. From first to last we changed vessels six times during a journey from Vienna to Constantinople. We travelled by four steamers and twice in boats, a circumstance which cannot be reckoned among the pleasures of a trip down the Danube. Though not a large boat, the Ferdinand is comfortable and well built. Even the second-class cabin is neatly arranged, and a pretty stove diffused a warmth which was peculiarly grateful to us all, as the thermometer showed only six to eight degrees above zero. Unfortunately, even here, the men and women are not separated in the second-class cabin, but care is at least taken that third-class passengers do not intrude. Twelve berths are arranged round the walls, and in front of these are placed broad benches well cushioned. April 3rd. At five o'clock in the morning we steamed out of the harbour of Galatz. Shortly afterwards basins and towels were handed to us, a custom totally unknown upon former vessels. For provisions, which are tolerably good, we are charged one florin, forty kroners per diem. Towards ten o'clock we reached Tehusa, a Bessarabian village of a most miserable appearance, where we stopped for a quarter of an hour, after which we proceeded without further delay towards the Black Sea. I had long rejoiced in the expectation of reaching the Black Sea, and imagined that near its mouth the Danube itself would appear like a sea but, as generally happens in life, great expectations, small realizations, so as it was the case here also. At Galatz the Danube is very broad, but some distance from its mouth it divides itself into so many branches that not one of them can be termed majestic. Towards three o'clock in the afternoon we at length entered the Black Sea. Here the arms of the Danube rush forward from every quarter, driving the sea tumultuously back, so that we can only distinguish in the far distance a stripe of green. For above an hour we glide on over the yellow, clayey, strongly agitated fresh water, until at last the boundary is passed, and we are careering over the salt waves of the sea. Unfortunately for us, equinoctial gales and heavy weather still so powerfully maintained their sway, that the deck was completely flooded with the salt brine. We could hardly stand upon our feet, and could not manage to reach the cabin door, where the bell was ringing for dinner, without the assistance of some sailors. Several of the passengers, myself among the number, 
did little honor to the cook's skill. We had scarcely begun to eat our soup, before we were so powerfully attacked by seasickness that we were obliged to quit the table precipitately. I laid myself down at once, feeling unable to move about, or even to drag myself on deck to admire the magnificent spectacle of nature. The waves frequently ran so high as to overtop the flue of our stove, and from time to time whole streams of water poured into the cabin. April 4th. Since yesterday the storm has increased considerably, so that we are obliged to hold fast by our cribs to avoid being thrown out. This misfortune really happened to one of the passengers, who was too ill to hold sufficiently tight. As I already felt somewhat better, I attempted to rise, but was thrown in the same instant with such a force against a table which stood opposite, that for a long time I felt no inclination to try again. There was not the slightest chance of obtaining any sleep all night. The dreadful howling of the wind among the masts and cordage, the fearful straining of the ship, which seemed as though its timbers were starting, the continual pitching and rolling, the rattling of the heavy cables above us, the cries, orders, and shouting of the captain and his sailors, all combined to form a din which did not allow us to enjoy a moment's rest. In the morning, ill as I felt myself, I managed to gain the deck with the help of the steward, and sat down near the steersman to enjoy the aspect of that grandest of nature's phenomena, a storm at sea. Holding tightly on, I bade defiance to the waves, which broke over the ship and wetted me all over, as though to cool my feverish heat. I could now form a clear and vivid conception of a storm at sea. I saw the waves rush foaming on, and the ship now diving into an abyss, and anon rising with the speed of lightning to the peak of the highest wave. It was a thrilling, fearful sight. Absorbed in its contemplation, I soon ceased to think of my sickness. Late at night the violence of the storm abated in some degree. We could now run in and cast anchor in the harbor of Varna, which under ordinary circumstances we should have reached twelve hours sooner. April 5th. This morning I had leisure to admire this fine fortress town, which was besieged and taken by the Russians in 1828. We remained here several hours. The upper portion of the ship was here loaded with fowl of all descriptions, to such a degree that the space left for us travellers was exceedingly circumscribed. This article of consumption seems to be in great demand in Constantinople, both among Turks and Franks, for our captain assured me that his vessel was laden with this kind of ware every time he quitted Varna, and that he carried it to Stambul. April 6th. The shades of night prevented my seeing one of the finest sights in the world, in anticipation of which I had rejoiced over ever since my departure from Vienna, the passage through the Bosphorus. A few days afterwards, however, I made the excursion in a kike, a very small and light boat, and enjoyed to my heart's content views and scenes which it is totally beyond my descriptive power to portray. At three o'clock in the morning, when we entered the harbour of Constantinople, every one, with the exception of the sailors, lay wrapped in sleep. I stood watching on deck, and saw the sun rise in its full glory over the imperial city, so justly and universally admired. We had cast anchor in the neighbourhood of Topona. The city of cities lay spread out before my eyes, built on several hills, each bearing a separate town, and all blending into a grand and harmonious whole. 
The town of Constantinople, properly speaking, is separated from Galata and Pera by the so-called Golden Horn. The means of communication is by a long and broad wooden bridge. Scutari and Bulgarloo rise in the form of terraces on the Asiatic shore. Scutari is surrounded within and without by a splendid wood of magnificent cypresses. In the foreground, on top of the mountain, lie the spacious and handsome barracks, which can contain ten thousand men. End of section three.